Don't Miss a Beat is a podcast series brought to you by the law firm of Saul Ewing, Arnstein & Lear that covers views from diverse constituencies within the food, beverage, and agribusiness, also known as FBA, sector. Hosted by Jonathan Havens and Kermit Nash, co-chairs of the firm's FBA group, episode guests offer various perspectives on a variety of legal, policy, and industry developments, day-to-day FBA issues, best practices, and the road ahead. Hi, everyone. This is Jonathan Havens, co-chair of Saul Ewing Arnstein and Lear's Food, Beverage, and Agribusiness Practice. We're thrilled that you've joined us for another episode of our podcast, Don't Miss a Beat. So we are very honored to be joined today by my partner and friend, Justin Danilevitz, who's a practitioner out of our Philadelphia office. So Justin practices, he's a litigator, practices in the area of white collar, But for this conversation, most notably, Justin is a former assistant U.S. attorney from the U.S. Department of Justice. And the reason that that is important is what we're going to be talking about today is a concept and a topic that those of us who have been practicing in the food, beverage, and agribusiness space, or those of our audience members who have been a member of this industry for even a bit of time, probably have heard rumblings about something called the Responsible Corporate Officer Doctrine. You might even remember, maybe not so lovingly from your law school days, talking about the Park Doctrine. So essentially what we're going to be talking about today is um, corporate officers and their responsibility for the goings-on of the organizations that they lead or that they oversee. And you know, it can be a scary topic and we completely acknowledge that, but I assure you that there is kind of no better voice on this topic than Justin, and it's going to be a great conversation. So with that, Justin, I want to welcome you to the podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. And if you want to introduce yourself a bit and then just tee up the conversation, that would be great. Perfect, Jonathan. And thank you so much for having me on the podcast. It's a real pleasure and privilege to join you today. Um, I don't think there's much more to say by way of background uh, about myself. Uh, I appreciate the intro. Um, I'm happy to just dive into the topic today, which, as you mentioned, is the Responsible Corporate Officer Doctrine, uh, also known as the Park Doctrine. And that comes from a case that is now nearly half a century old. United States versus Park was a U.S. Supreme Court case from 1975, and it involved criminal charges against the president of Acme, a well-known shopping chain, retail chain that had uh, a warehouse in Baltimore. Uh, And I feel like this is so appropriate because I'm in the Philadelphia area today, you're in Baltimore, so it's kind of our two worlds coming together. Absolutely. Um, But the Acme chain that had its headquarters in the Philadelphia area, uh, Mr. Park was its president, And um, he was charged under a provision of the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, um, Section 331, uh, and its criminal provision 333, um, because there was a rodent infestation in the warehouse in Baltimore. And due to that infestation, the food that was in storage became, uh, in the words of the statute, uh, adulterated. Um, meaning contaminated. And so as a result of that, the United States government charged Mr. Park with violations of the FDCA. Um, As people will know from the Park case, um, what it held 
following uh, from an earlier US Supreme Court case is that an individual who stands in a position of responsibility with respect to lower level employees in an organization um, incurs responsibility and legal liability for the conduct of those other employees. Um, and that can include uh, criminal liability, including misdemeanor criminal liability with strict liability. And the meaning of that is, as folks will know who are lawyers, no fault liability. In other words, even without knowing um, of the underlying conduct that was going on, an executive in a company um, in this particular space under the Food, Drug and Cosmetic Act um, and the statutes that I referenced can be held strictly liable for the conduct of lower level employees. Um, that is highly unusual, I would say, in criminal law, uh, particularly in federal criminal law. Uh, we see some, some other examples of it in local and state criminal law. We can talk about that a little bit later. Um, but it, it does arise in this context where you have a general public welfare statute. And the concern for the public welfare is so great that um, courts and interpreting you know, the, the legislation of Congress have said, we are going to hold you criminally liable uh, for failing to prevent the conduct of um, other employees, even if you were completely unaware of that conduct taking place. And so what it does in effect, Jonathan, is it imposes an incredibly high responsibility and burden uh, on corporate executives to ensure that this kind of conduct does not take place. Sure. So, you know, that's great that you mentioned that at the tail of, of your, you know, kind of your introductory remarks. One of my questions relates to, you know, this, this might come as a surprise to, to, to our listeners, right? That a CEO who's not involved in the day-to-day -day operations of a warehouse, right? You know, the CEO of Acme Park probably had never seen this warehouse before, right? And so this thought of how can I be criminally responsible for something that I might not even know about, but you, you started to address this in your comments. So it's, it's a two-part question. One, is this unique to the food, drug, and cosmetic space? And assuming it's not, do we see this kind of phenomenon elsewhere, um, you know, in the bar, so to speak, right? Can this type of liability attach elsewhere? And of course, this, you know, our, our audience are food, beverage, and agribusiness folks. So we want to keep it kind of tightly narrowed. But is there any sort of precedent for this or any sort of application in other fields? Yeah, absolutely. And, and let me first start off before getting to where we see it in other areas, um, to just note that in the park case itself, uh, the plot actually was a little bit thicker uh, than the brief description I've given you. And in fact, Mr. Park's company uh, had received a warning letter from the FDA, and that was evidence introduced at trial. Uh, it was so-called 404B evidence. That's under federal rule of evidence 404B, where you can introduce evidence of uncharged conduct um, or other acts in order to demonstrate some permissible issue um, in the case. And in that instance, it was, you know, to prove that Mr. Park was on notice of the poor state of this warehouse in Baltimore. So he may not have visited, may not have known much about it, but he was in effect put on notice. And that's where I think things become really interesting because, um, you know, to say that he had no knowledge whatsoever would be a little bit of a stretch. And this is a, a topic that I think is, is so fascinating because we can talk a little bit later about 
the, the practical application of the doctrine and how prosecutors tend uh, to look for evidence where in fact there is knowledge, even though under the strict terms of the statute, they would be permitted under the Park case to proceed without that kind of knowledge. So that's just one small clarification I wanted to make and we can talk about it further later. To respond to your question directly though, uh, where do we see this kind of strict criminal liability elsewhere? Um, I think most significantly, we see this on a, on a daily basis um, in corporate criminal liability. The standard for liability for a corporate entity uh, in the United States um, is pretty simple. It is if you have an employee, any individual employee who was acting within the scope of their employment, and engaged in conduct, at least in part, for the benefit of their employer and commits a crime while doing those things, um, the company itself is criminally liable. Now, you can say that sounds incredibly unfair. Um, the company might have undertaken enormous due diligence efforts uh, and compliance programs in order to prevent that kind of conduct by an employee but the strict liability aspect of this vicarious corporate criminal liability says, too bad, so sad, uh, the company is gonna be on the hook for that. So I think that's probably the most prominent manifestation we have of it in the federal criminal system. Um, in, in state and local law, you also see it in, in an environmental context. Um, you, you see it, for example, in a, in a situation that I'm most familiar with in Pennsylvania, we have an environmental statute called the Solid Waste Management Act. Mm -hmm. It imposes strict liability for companies um, who engage in violations of that environmental statute. And so there again, I think you see a common theme between the environmental law and the Food, Drug and Cosmetic Act. They are statutes that sort of protect and regulate general welfare. Um, and where you have issues that are of such great public health, public welfare concern, um, what the courts have said, and this comes from the Dodderwich case, which preceded Park, is that, and I'm quoting, in the interest of the larger good, it puts the burden of acting at hazard upon a person otherwise innocent, but standing in responsible relation to a public danger. And that's sort of the, the, the genesis of this concept of the responsible corporate officer doctrine and the, the strict liability that flows from that. That's great. You know, one thing I wanted to go back to for a moment, and this is, you know, call it a practice pointer, call it a nugget that you can take away. But one of the things we always talk to clients about when they receive a warning letter from FDA are a couple of things. One, you know, opening your mail, the simplest of things. And it, it sounds simple, but during COVID, you know, we know a lot of people aren't in their physical offices. And one of the things we've talked to clients about is making sure that mail is either forwarded or you have a skeletal staff or someone who's reading your mail. But your comments really underlie even more so than we were telling clients previously, the importance of reading those warning letters and responding to them. And furthermore, having a process or a procedure in place so that those issues are being communicated up the chain appropriately, right? You don't want a situation where someone is reading a warning letter and you know, no offense to anybody, but a low level clerk at your company is making a decision whether or not it's a serious issue, right? If you have allegations of insanitary conditions at a warehouse and you're a food company, or you have allegations that there's cross-contamination between your processing lines and you could have an allergen exposure issue, you know, things like that. 
you want to make sure that those are reported up the chain, perhaps not to the CEO, right? With some of these larger companies, that sounds a little bit absurd, but you want to be able to say, look, if the government's gonna be able to put on this evidence and say that the company was quote on notice right under that 404B rule that you talked about, it's important that we can't just bury this letter and say, oh, it wasn't important, we didn't receive it, right? FDA tracks these warning letters. They send a lot of this stuff either via email with read receipt and certified mail or certified mail you know, alone. The bottom line is what you were saying about the ability of the government to put on evidence of um, what was the language used, uncharged conduct, right? Which is the whole notion of an FDA warn letter to begin with. It's an allegation from FDA that you could have violated a law or regulation, not proof necessarily. So in any event, I just wanted to kind of sidebar that and say, look, Justin's information here on the park doctor and responsible corporate officer doctrine, that makes it all the more important that you are actually routing these warning letters and allegations of misconduct from regulatory agencies, whether they're FDA or otherwise, appropriately. I was going to say, you're absolutely right. Um, You know, this is an area of of just heightened concern. Um, And so all the kind of good housekeeping that companies ordinarily want to ensure they have um, is is so much more important in this kind of context where you're dealing with the strict liability statute to begin with. And bear in mind that the government is sending you that warning letter, not only most obviously because they want you to remedy the issue, um, but there's also a secondary purpose, and that is to make proof of intent much easier down the road. If it comes to an enforcement action, you know what better evidence do you want to have to present to a jury than um, here's the dated letter that was sent, certified mail to the company and, and signed for and received. Why was nothing done? Sure, sure. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's kind of, you know, it's keep it simple, right? If you don't respond, if you don't open your mail and don't respond to your mail, that can have grave consequences down the road. And not to say that just responding to a warning letter is going to be enough, but it's a good first step um, and making sure that that it is routed appropriately. Yep, no you, question about it. Can you talk about, you know, we've probably sufficiently scared um, some members of our audience. Let's put this into context, right? We talked about how this presents in the FDA realm and we've talked about how it presents in the non-FDA realm, but you know, A, how common is this? How common is it for DOJ to bring these charges? And there's this interesting phenomenon where you, you'll have DOJ and FDA um, kind of co-chairing these these actions, right? DOJ on the prosecutorial side, FDA kind of on the merits of the, the statutory issues. But how common is it that we're going to see DOJ bringing these RCO uh, cases? And then also, you know, depending on that, what do companies do about this? What are some practice pointers? We've talked about some of them, but it, you know, if you could offer some others, that would be fantastic. Absolutely. Um, so with respect to how common is this, um, it's exceedingly common. Um, these, these prosecutions happen frequently. I, I think the District of Massachusetts is one prominent example I can think of um, that's had at least a couple over the last couple of years or so. Northern District of Texas had one. Um, and you know they don't always arise in a, a food context per se, under the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, obviously, as, as you know, and your listeners will know very well, um, it also regulates medical devices 
um, and other things. So there've been some interesting cases involving med devices. In addition to, you know, there was a, a very prominent case where there was a cert petition, petition of certiorari to the US Supreme Court um, called the Costa involving uh, adulteration of eggs and a salmonella problem that was you know, a pretty big issue across the country some time ago. So these cases happen frequently. Um, what I would say though, as a bit of reassurance, is that very, very often, what you find is that prosecutors are not pushing the envelope to the point of a true lack of knowledge, complete lack of intent kind of case, uh, which in its strictest form, the Park Doctrine would allow. Um, more commonly, what you see is there is evidence of some kind of knowledge um, and intent. And so you, you find a felony charge along with the misdemeanor charge. The misdemeanor charge under the FDCA is the one that does not require intent it's strict liability. The felony counterpart um, comes into play where there's a repeated offense or there's an intent to, to defraud or, or mislead. That can arise in a, in a felony charge. And so you frequently see that the statute is charged with both the felony and misdemeanor counterparts. Um, and even if a jury acquits on the felony and convicts on the misdemeanor, what you have is obviously a conviction on the misdemeanor, but what people may not be seeing is additional evidence of, of knowing conduct, intentional conduct. Um, and so in that DaCosta case that I mentioned, um, you know, the petition for certiorari sort of wants to portray the two defendants in that case, two family members, um, as innocent parties without any knowledge of the salmonella outbreak, um, the Solicitor General's office in response in their brief in opposition says not so fast, um, there, there was actually some evidence of their awareness of the problem. Right. And so that, that sort of harshness of the doctrine in its, in its black letter law kind of sense is blunted a little bit by prosecutorial discretion. And so what, what we hope for is fair-minded prosecutors um, who are going to be diligent about you know, exercising their, their power and authority in an appropriate way. And where that doesn't happen, then you know, there's room for persuasive advocacy by counsel to go in and meet with the government, uh, prosecutors, FDA lawyers, um, you know, the Consumer Protection Branch uh, in Maine Justice in DC as part of the Department of Justice uh, brings these cases as well. Um, and to sit down with them and to make that argument for the kinds of compliance programs that a company hopefully has in place. And so that's really the message at the end of the day is this can be harsh, it can be a sharp instrument, um, but we, you know, we don't need to throw up our hands and give up. There's a lot that can be done preemptively um, companies should be, you know, super cautious about implementing rigorous compliance policies and procedures. Um, and that'll have a benefit for the corporation, of course, most obviously. It'll also benefit employees, individual employees who are very much in the spotlight um, as a result of the, the so-called Yates memo by former Deputy Attorney General Sally Yates, which really um, prioritized individual criminal prosecutions by DOJ. Um, but, but I think that, you know, you can still sleep well at night if you've made every effort to train employees well, to adopt good compliance policies and procedures. Um, if companies have hired you, Jonathan, to come in and implement those kinds of compliance programs, it doesn't 
guarantee that there will never be an inquiry, but it'll certainly make for, for much smoother sledding if there is one. Sure. Yeah, right. It's, it's a lot easier of a conversation when the government says, show me your procedure on recalls and you have a document to show them, even if it's not fully baked, right? It's a better conversation starter to say, oh, here's our policy and it was updated last January. Then, yep. oh, we don't have that policy. Um, so, you know, and then one observation, you know, my question about how common is this, and you mentioned how much FDA regulates, a statistic that I like to throw out there, it's probably a self-serving statistic that only FDA lawyers will tell you is 25 cents out of every dollar spent in the United States is spent on a product that is regulated by the FDA, mm-hmm. which when you think about it, what does the FDA regulate? Foods, beverages, dietary supplements, drugs, medical devices, biologics, I mean, these are, some of them are bigger ticket items to begin with, but think about you know, food that we're eating and beverages we're drinking and medical products that we're using. Um, and so it's not surprising that given the policy aims behind the responsible corporate doctrine and protecting consumers from unscrupulous companies um, you know, who are asleep at the wheel, so to speak, to put it bluntly, it makes sense. Obviously the repercussions can be great, but as Justin pointed out, there are a number of things that companies can do both pre and post. Obviously pre is preferred, um, but you know, if companies only came to us as lawyers pre, um, you know, I think things would be a little bit duller for, for everybody involved. But you know, the, the lesson is there are things that you can do wherever you are in the life cycle of your company to, to help mitigate risk um, and mitigate exposure. So. Um, Justin, I promised you that the 20 minutes would go fast. I think you would probably agree that it went very fast. We could talk about this all day. I'm not sure our audience members would find it as interesting as Justin and I talking about it all day, but I know you and I would would have a, a nerd fest about it at least. Um, but this was tremendously helpful, very interesting, breaking it down into the essential components for our audience members. And um, you know, we uh, we thank you for joining us. And again, as we always say, We love your feedback. If there's a topic you haven't heard us cover yet, you want to hear us cover, please please send us that feedback. Let us know what you liked, what you didn't like, what we could do better, um, or just that you're out there and you're listening and giving us a thumbs up. We uh, we appreciate it. So Justin, really wanted to say thank you again. Always a pleasure to spend time with you. I always learn something and uh, today was no exception. So thank you so much. Thank you, Jonathan. It was a lot of fun. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks everyone. Please be sure to join us next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of Don't Miss a Beat, brought to you by the law firm of Saul Ewing, Arnstein & Lear. Please be sure to subscribe to hear more podcast episodes related to developments in the food, beverage, and agriculture industry.